Am I just adding to the noise? It's a question that I have to ask myself because I live in attention. On one hand, I want my life to make a difference. I want to know that by the time that my time on earth is finished, that what I have done here has been significant. As a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and to be honest with you, just as a person. But on the other hand, I find that the thing that most gets in the way of any semblance of greatness in my life is me. I am good at my self-centered desires, plans, and pride getting in the way. And I don't know if you can relate to that at all. But even just this week, I bumped up against it. So just last night, um, we had our communications department from the church over for dessert. Uh, Jake, who's our graphic designer, and Ellie, who is singing up here, who is our communications assistant. But earlier in the week, my wife and I had a little misunderstanding if we were having dinner with them or dessert with them. It, it wasn't that, you know, a huge deal that we misunderstood. It's, it happens all the time. But I was under the impression we were doing dinner. She was under the impression we were doing dessert. And that wasn't the issue. Misunderstandings happen all the time. The issue was how I responded once it became apparent that we weren't on the same page. Because my response to finding out that she was thinking dessert and I was thinking dinner was, well, of course, we're just going to do my way. Clearly, I have the better idea, and you just need to come along with it. Did you notice that I said at the beginning that we did dessert with them last night? <laughs> and it's a small example, but those small things creep up in our life all the time, do they not? So when those things creep up, we realize that that's inside of me. That's getting in the way. And while we want our lives to make a difference, our self-centered efforts not only get in the way, but they can hurt us. They can hurt others. And a lot of times we end up being a lot like what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, just a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal fumbling towards what we think is greatness but falling flat on our face. So the question for us this morning is how can we be sure that our life is not just making noise? Well, in a moment, we're going to dive into the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But before we go there, would you just join me in prayer? Right now, I just invite you silently before God to ask him to show up and speak to us during this time today. And if you would also pray for yourself that God would open your ears, your mind, and your heart to receive to what he wants to say to you this morning. And if you would as well pray for me that the words I speak would not be my own, but that God's Spirit would powerfully speak through me to each of us during this time. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. 
Well, whether you're here in the room with us today or whether you're watching us online, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to follow along with the story of the Tower of Babel. And in the first two verses, we're going to start off with the setting of the story. Let's read those. It says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The setting is set by simplicity. You look at it and it's very simple. They have the same language. They have the same words. Seems nice, doesn't it? It's also identified by this simple word at the end, settling. They found an area that looked amazing. They said, this looks good. So we're going to settle here. And that in and of itself doesn't seem like much of an issue, does it? You know, you find a place that looks good. You want to settle down there. You want to make it a home. They wanted to do the same thing. So on one level, those desires weren't half bad. But we have to understand the context of Genesis chapter 11 and back up a little bit. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. And it's very, very good. But it doesn't take long, and we actually get to Genesis 3, and sin enters the picture. The fall happens, and things start to get a little ugly. By Genesis 4, we reach the story of Cain and Abel, and it's very ugly. The first siblings, the first murder, and things just seem to start to derail from there on out. Until we get to Genesis 5 through 9, with Noah and the flood. And God sees the wickedness upon the earth and decides that he needs to destroy all the wickedness that exists, sparing one family graciously to restart this whole process. And it's in Genesis 9 that we find God's covenant with Noah. He puts his rainbow in the sky and says, never again will I destroy the earth by a flood. But he also says in 9 verse 1, this command that he gives to Noah. He says, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and what? Fill the earth. That command is reiterated again in chapter 9 verse 7. Fill the earth. So God has made his plan clear for his people. You're to populate the earth to fill it. Don't settle, but go. Fill every corner of this planet. So God lays out that plan, and as we run up against the story in chapter 11, we see that the settling of these people was only the beginning of their self-centered plans. Let's take a look at the anatomy of those self-centered plans, shall we? Verses 3 and 4. They said to one another, come, let us bake make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. They used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Did you catch it? The attitude here is really clear. It's summed up in two words, let us. They say it three different times, let us. Make bricks. Let us build for ourselves a city. Let us make 
for ourselves a name. Well, let's unpack that let us a little bit more, shall we? Because the first thing we're going to see about their self-centered plans is that it was empowered by technology. They had new technology. They said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick for stone and tar for mortar and ended up with something that probably looked nothing like this, but you get the idea. It's a brick. And I, I read this passage before for years, and I'm like, why do they describe how to make bricks? Or why do they describe the particular way that their bricks were made? And it wasn't until years later that I understood more clearly that the point is not about how the bricks were made. The point is being made about their ability to make the brick, because this wasn't something that had existed before. It was a new technology. And because they had this new technology, the brick, they were able to dream dreams and set goals for themselves that were previously impossible. Now, I'm talking about the brick, but you can fill in your favorite technology here because not much has changed thousands of years later. This could be your cell phone, this could be your computer, this could be that thing that you're working on at work, whatever it may be. Technology can have a sense that makes us feel powerful because we're able to do what we've never done before, and that was true here as well. Now, the funny thing about the brick is this. The brick in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a brick. Sure, this brick could be used to make a tower that's just a monument to self-achievement. It could be something that we could be prideful about or center our pride around. This brick could also be used to wound somebody. You could hit someone over the head with this thing. You could throw it and hurt somebody really bad. But I find it curious that when Burke Community Church was building its new building, that we didn't say, the building committee didn't say, you know what? I've read Genesis 11. Better not use brick. I don't know if you've noticed outside, but there's a lot of brick on this building. Did we make a mistake? No, because the reality with the brick and with all technologies is this brick can be used to build a building where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. This brick can be used to build a building where God's people gather to worship and proclaim Christ in his kingdom. The issue is not the brick. The issue is the hearts of men. In this ways that our selfish desires get in the way. What are the bricks in your life? For these men on this day, their brick was a reason for them to feel empowered, prideful, and able to do something that no one else could do before. If you look at the screen, you're going to see a preview of our new church website that launches a week from today. It's been a project we've been working on. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm really excited for you guys to be able to experience this. In the coming months and years, too, we're going to lean into other technologies, social media, advertising in the community, all sorts of different things that can be dangerous with the wrong attitude, but also 
very effective when it comes to proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to the world around us and letting others know about the opportunity to know him and experience him. So that's really the attitude of communications at Burke Community Church. And where we're going is that we don't want to shy away from technology, realize some of the pitfalls that can come with it, but be a church that boldly uses it for the greatest purpose ever, the kingdom of God. Well, these men weren't just empowered by new technology. As we see in this passage, they were also driven by fame. Verse four, they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens and let us make for ourselves a name. Oh, that sounds great. No one else has built a tower like this. No one else has built a city like this. We can be the first. People will come from miles around to see the thing that we have done, and it'll be amazing. I'm one of the newer people around here. When you step into a new environment, you want, to know, you want people to know who you are. You want people to know what you have to offer. You want to make a name for yourself. So they were empowered by new technology. They were driven by fame, but we also see here that they were motivated by fear. Why did they want to build the city? Why did they want to make a name for themselves? It says at the end of verse 4, they said, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be scattered. We've settled here. It's good. It's comfortable. And if we can succeed at what we're doing right here in this place, then just maybe we won't have to be scattered. Maybe we won't have to go into uncharted territory. Maybe we can just play it safe and be okay. Up on the screen, you're going to see a picture of my family. It's my wife, Amanda, my twin daughters, Olivia and Harper, and my son, Hudson. And just three months ago, we went through the crazy experience of packing up our entire lives. And I know many people in this congregation do this way more often than we have, but we lived our whole lives in California. Knew nothing but California. Packed up everything that we had, said goodbye to the people we knew, and we headed across the country. For those of you that um, aren't aware of the connection, uh, Marty Baker, our senior pastor, is my father-in-law, and my wife is his daughter. And so Marty and Liz came out and they picked up the kids and they hopped in a plane with them and they flew across the country, which meant my wife and I and the dog got five days to hop in our minivan and drive across the country and come here. And I got to tell you, my wife and I had a tremendous time, minus the fact that we were stuck in a car for 10 hours every day. That, that part's not the greatest, but it was, it was great. And the dog, the dog had a little issues too, but she, she's doing great. Um, but we had this great time together. But I have to tell you, by day four or five, sitting in the car, you start to get a little kooky. And it's pretty natural, I would venture to say, but some of the fear can start to set in. You hit Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, and you're like, we are not near home. And we're not turning around and going back. And everything we've said bye to is now behind us. And now we're heading into the unknown. 
Did we make the right decision? Was it a good decision? Are we going to regret any of this? How is it going to work out with our house, our neighbors, making new friends, the schools our kids are going to be in? And you realize there's some fear that's bubbling up. Around day five, when I was really losing it, I, I started to realize something else that was bubbling up inside of me. Oh, we're, we're moving just outside of Washington, D.C. There's some big stuff that happens in that city. There's some people with influence, with power. And you start to daydream, what would happen if I rub shoulders with some of those people? What kind of places of position and relationship could I find myself in? See, I don't think any of us are immune from the fear or the fame creeping in and and tempting us. And we have to ask ourselves, are my plans self-centered? They might be well-intended. They might even seem like good plans, but we have to ask ourselves, are they self-centered, motivated by fame, motivated by fear? And maybe not even just about us. Maybe our self-centered plans are directed towards others. We're like, no, this is what's best for you. You need this. Because as we're going to see what happens next, just as they had been building this tower for a long time and probably thought things were going great, everything is about to change because God comes down. It says in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. This is the midpoint of our story. We're right in the middle of it. It's where the conflict really comes in or If anyone's a screenwriter, it can be referred to as the inciting incident. Things are about to change because God has come down. But you notice in these words, too, there's a bit of humor. It says God came down. Why? To get them in trouble? No. To chew them out? No. God came down, what? To see the city and the tower which the sons of men were building. Did you catch that? So from their perspective, they're saying, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. People are going to come and say, look how amazing that is. There was probably even a little bit post-flood of saying, if we can build it tall enough, the waters can't get us. We'll be safe. We'll be powerful. But what does it look like from God's perspective? What does it look like when God sees it? It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men men had built. What you doing down there? I think I see something. Oh, what's that? A tower? Oh, you guys are adorable. (laughs) That's cute. We see in these words that this thing that we build to be majestic, to be powerful, the things that we think are so great from God's infinite perspective are infinitesimally small. It's like when you look at the curvature of the earth from space and it's, you know, about as rough as a cue ball. And yet we have people that spend tens of thousands of dollars and months of their lives just to make it to the top of the highest point. God comes down to see what they are doing. And it shows us that God is active in our world. He's active in our decisions and in our lives. 
We might go for a while thinking it's just us captaining the ship, but God is involved and he is there. And let me ask you, do you think he's impressed by their tower? No, I think he doesn't see something impressive. I think when he looks at it, as we see in verse 6, he sees the fruit of their pride. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do? And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God's observation is, Behold, look, this is what they've begun to do. We're still in Genesis. Remember, he's created. I gave them this world. I gave them their intellect. I gave them the resources and the abilities and all the things that they could use, and they decided to build a monument to themselves. This is what they began to do. And then this interesting observation is made where God says, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Let me ask you, do you think that's true? Do you think nothing is impossible for men? We've done some incredible things. We have amazing technological advances. Things we can do medically. Things we can do technologically are absolutely incredible. But does that mean that there is nothing that's impossible for man? No. There's plenty that's impossible. Similarly, let me ask you, is there anything that's impossible for God? You see, can man speak something into existence that doesn't exist? Can man form the universe by his power? And think about all the amazing technologies that man has developed and then compare it to just a single human being and the complexity of the human body and tell me which one's more magnificent. I think there's a bit of hyperbole here. And it's not that God is threatened by man. That's not the case at all. But I think God is acknowledging that because of their technology, because of their accomplishment, these men are beginning to think that they can do what God does. God comes down. God sees their pride. And what happens next? Well, God frustrates their plans. Verse 7, he says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. This is a really big thing that happens here. And remember early on how we said the attitude of these individuals was let us. It was self-centered pride. Let us do this. Let us do this. Let us well, the Trinity just, just one-ups them right here. They turn to each other and say, let us do this. And it's the final word. It's the final say. There's no dialogue that happens after this, let us. God says, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Does this strike anyone else as odd? That God's solution is confusion? I'm a communications pastor. This is not my strategy. 
I'd be run out of town if it was. For me in my world, my reality is that I firmly believe that the church carries the greatest message that's ever been communicated. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the hope for every person on this planet. It is the road to true, abundant life to the fullest. And I want other people to hear it, understand it, and respond to it. I want us as a church to be people that communicate that so others hear it, respond to it, and are transformed by it. And one of the best ways to do that is to bring clarity. Because there's barriers to people hearing it. Some of that is just distraction. Life is too busy. Some of that is just geography. Some people just haven't heard. Sometimes it can be uh, what uh, one pastor refers to as defeater beliefs. Because I believe this, I will reject the, the, the gospel. And so we enter into conversation with those people. We hear where they're coming from. We listen to their, 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 uh, their con- uh, preconceived notions, and we help deconstruct those things through conversation. It takes patience, it takes time, and once again, it takes clear communication. But one thing I love about this passage is it reminds me once again that God's methods are not my methods. God's way of doing things is outside of my understanding and my way of doing things. So God brings confusion And in this, we find an incredible truth. You see, God will not hesitate to frustrate our self-centered plans. Have you experienced this? Or even better yet, is this still happening today? It happened at Babel thousands of years ago, but is this still happening today? And I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about this question, and a few things stood out to me. One, Just over a year ago, the world was moving fast-paced towards whatever it was moving towards, and a virus halted everything, slowed us down, changed our trajectory, the way that we think about things, the way we interact, the way we process information. We face challenges that come with it, and we were frustrated in many different ways. We live in a world that seems to have a lot of confusion Many of the divides in our world are real and they're hard and in many ways painful. There's a generational divide, a political divide, social divide, racial divide, and others. And why does it seem like sometimes the hardest thing is for people on either side of that divide to speak a language that the other can understand? Why does it seem harder than ever in our world to simply know what's true? To read the news and have an accurate sense of what's going on in our world today. Friends, have we ever considered that maybe God is frustrating the selfish plans of our world? Have we considered that in this day and age that it wouldn't be outside the possibility that once again God would say, I'm going to allow their efforts to be frustrated and I'm going to confuse them because I have something else in mind. And that's exactly what God does in the story of the Tower of Babel. He says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. 
and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. They settled, they got self-centered with fear and fame, and God scattered them. They set out to make a name for themselves. They didn't even finish the building project. They set out not to be scattered. And that's exactly what happened to them. Not just as a punishment, because that was God's plan and it was going to happen, whether they got in the way or not. This truth can seem a little bit daunting. But I know one thing I've personally learned is just how good it can be that God may frustrate our self-centered plans. When my family was driving across the country on day five, we were really excited to see our kids because it had been a little while. We were 40 miles west of Burke, and we were getting very close. We were driving on 66 in the fast lane. My wife was driving, and I was in the passenger seat. And a car came up quickly behind us, didn't pass us all the way, and cut over into our lane, giving us nothing to do but to... Um, drive on to the, the median. My wife responded beautifully in that situation. I don't think she could have done anything better. We were left with no choice other than hitting that car. We were run off the road into a ditch. You can see the picture on the screens. And in that moment, a lot of feelings hit in. There's the adrenaline that sets in and things seem calm for a second, but then you realize what happened and it gets very intense very quick. We were sad that we wouldn't be with our kids as soon as we had hoped for, but we were also just very grateful to be okay. Because on another day, in another scenario where that we got run off the road, there may have been something else in the median. Um, we might have hit that car. Things could have turned out very differently than they did. And I realized in that moment that God was saying something to me. He was saying, Greg, this isn't your trip. This isn't your journey. This isn't your position. This isn't your new job. God was saying, Greg, I've brought you here. I've called you here. I've led you here. I know how many days you have. I'm in control of when that day will be. But Greg, this isn't the space for you pursuing your pithy little pursuit of fame, trying to make a name for yourself, or just running scared in fear because God was saying, Greg, I have called you here. You see, God frustrates the plans of self-centered people, but it doesn't end there. In many ways, it's just the beginning because he blesses the plans of those who are sensitive to his leadership. And similarly, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel is not the end of the story because out of that lineage, out of that place, out of that story we just read, God raised up another man, another man who was scattered. 
And I thought of what story to end this sermon with, nothing better than the one that God wrote in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here we see God's great plan where he says to Abram, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land I will show you. Okay, that's terrifying, right? And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse, and in in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Do you notice the difference there? While the men of Babel said, let us, let us, let us, God says, I will. God says, I will, Abram, I will do these things. I will bless you. Through you, all will be blessed. Why do we come here on Sunday mornings? Why do we read God's word? Why do we worship him? Because God is saying, I will. God has said, I will. His promises are true. His powers are great. He can bring about greatness in our lives. But he will frustrate you in your self-centered plans for the sake of his greater plan. I love this quote from the lead singer of U2, Bono, from a 2013 interview. He said, we have a pastor who said to us, Stop asking God to bless what you're doing, Bono. He said, find out what God is doing because it's already blessed. When you align yourself with God's purpose and direction in the scriptures, something special happens in your life. What about you today? Are you aligned with God's purposes as laid out in his word? Because we all have to ask ourselves that question, and I just adding to the noise. We want our lives to make a difference, right? We want to experience greatness. But we also don't want to get in the way. Are you willing to say today that I want to move beyond the noise? Well, I invite you today, whether you're with us in person or online, to do something a little different that may not be normative, a little out of your comfort zone, but I think it's going to be great. I want to read this prayer to you, and in a minute, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. It says this, God, I realize my tendency to take control. Forgive me for placing my confidence in my agenda and failing to seek out your desires. Today, I lay aside my self-centered plans and surrender to your will. Thank you for the great plans you have for me. Amen. If that's the desire of your heart today, I invite you right now just to say that with me and pray it to God. God, I realize my tendency to take control. Forgive me for placing my confidence in my agenda and failing to seek out your desires. Today, I lay aside my self-centered plans and surrender to your will. Thank you for the great plans you have for me. Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I lift up my friends here today to you. I lift up those prayers to you that have just confessed our own tendency to seek our selfish desire, but our acknowledgement as well that, God, you alone are great. You alone are powerful. And we believe that you alive in us is the hope for the world. Thank you, God for doing your mighty work, and even thank you, God, for the ways that you let our self-centered plans fail. 
I ask for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, I ask for Burke Community Church that you would make us a church that shines your light to the world around us and that others would see your greatness in us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.